Hello and welcome to another podcast from me, Mike Figgis. And again, I'm joined by my friend Ali Agala. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Just a pleasure. We have a lot. I think I have five topics to talk about today. So we'll jump straight in. I think you were asking me. So you just went to the United States. And how was your trip? Well, the trip was interesting. It's my first flight since I came back from Hong Kong. So it's almost a year. And it was terrifying experience um, checking in kind of stressful but I got on the flight the flight was fine and I went to Florida to film and interview a remarkable man Martin Stewart mm-hmm. who is probably one of the finest nature recording artists in the world and Martin is poorly he has oh. a fairly advanced cancer and his archive he's just done a deal with Apple mm-hmm. for his entire nature archive and um, I got involved because Rosie Chan is doing music with him mm-hmm. and there's talk about making a film and so I said somebody somebody should interview Martin he's a uh, kind of my age he's in his late 60s and he's from Birmingham he looks like somebody from heavy metal Birmingham. band he looks like a bass player I when I first heard his recordings um, I was blown away the quality of his recordings just the it wasn't like a nature recording I'd ever heard before. And this is rainforest, it's thunderstorms, it's hurricanes, it's Yosemite. So I was intrigued to meet him. Um, on a techie, geeky level, I wanted to know how he, how he did it and how he does what he, what he does. I, uh, long story short, checked into a Hilton hotel in the middle of nowhere, rented a hybrid car and set off to meet Martin. So I was there for a week. And I learned so much in that week about actually about recording techniques and as you know I'm a little bit obsessed with you know tape recorders and audio and music so Martin Martin is extraordinary and he told stories of he's also an activist political activist he's filmed the dolphins being slaughtered in Japan he's filmed three-day festivals in remote China where they torture dogs for three days and then boil them alive and then eat them and the reason given for torturing them is that the chemicals that are released into the blood make the dog so much tastier when you eat them. So some pretty shocking stuff. All of this I got on film. You know, mm-hmm. I was given a very young crew, very nice people. I had to get them. You know me. Um, I'm, a, I'm a nice tyrant, I would think. Um, I'm nice on the first day, and then I kind of had to say, okay, okay, this is how I believe you should hold a camera. And this is how I believe you should stand as very still when you're interviewing someone like Martin. But you're usually right, though, or you're right when you do oh, those I things. Am, I know I'm right. Yeah. You know, but I mean, I think, you know, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later on under the topic of what is wrong with film. Mm-hmm. It's really to do with attitude and your relationship with your equipment and so on. But we'll, we'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the crew were great and they, they shipped up and they got into shape in 24 hours. And by the end of it, I think we had a very tight and um, very emotional little group as we were getting this amazing information from Martin. Mm -hmm. That footage is now waiting to be edited and I have a meeting tomorrow to discuss what we might do with that. So that was was my my Florida trip. I was in a part of Florida where I couldn't, I have no idea. I mean, literally from the Hilton Hotel in my car to his house on the beach on this incredible strip of land that is actually in the sea, very vulnerable to hurricanes and all the rest of it. 
and then I would drive back at night. One night I had a hamburger in the uh, in the Hilton. I mean, I started eating this hamburger, and halfway through the hamburger, I felt terrible, you know, because of he's a animal activist. I'm uh, a little curious about sort of what you said. Martin was a nature recordist, and what are these recordings used for? That was one of my questions. I said, mm. so you know, number one, when did you make your first recording? <clears throat> the answer was when he was about 13 in this council house in Birmingham. He there was a strip of countryside nearby, and he went and started recording birds. And he said he had a very intense childhood and he always went into nature to get his mojo back. Mm. I was interested in that early period and he was a little bit vague about it, but mm. obviously he established himself and ultimately his archives that he amassed, and he has literally thousands of recordings, he started selling to feature films right. like you know, Indiana Jones and things like If they wanted a perfect ambience mm. of a rainforest, Martin was the go-to guy. He worked on a lot of, you know, BBC-type, Attenborough-type, you know, yeah. documentaries. To make a recording, a beautiful recording, he said he sometimes would wait nine hours for the perfect recording. Sometimes it never came. And then what was interesting in his technique, he would make three or four or five recordings. He would, for example, we went out by the sea and he recorded the sea for me. Mm. First of all, he placed the microphone next to the surf. Then he did a second recording with about 14 meters back from the surf, so much more ambient. And then he did a third recording, which was basically into the mangrove swamp from the wide perspective. And he said, to make a good recording, I will now combine all of those and create my own stereo. He showed me a technique called mid-side recording, which I'd never used before, which I've... I've been testing all week, and it's amazing. So when you were in the States working on your documentary with Martin, of course, the Oscars happened, mm. and it's kind of impossible not to mention what happened. And I was actually awake when it happened, which would have been sort of 4 a.m. Mm. Uh, and I'm just wondering what your take on it is. Well, I saw the headline, because um, I don't watch those shows anymore, because I find them actually disgusting. I agree with you. Um, I think it's over for the award ceremony, and I've been to a few. I mean, the moment they were hijacked by the fashion industry, I, th I think it was over for the film industry. And, you know, as I mentioned in another podcast, it is the film industry and show business. So, you know, it is all about business. Mm. Um, it's quite funny. There was a thing circulating, which was Ricky Gervais's very testy little speech to the Golden Globes, which is kind of almost a work of genius, I think. And I thought the difference between what Chris Rock was doing and what Gervais was doing was that Ricky Gervais was directly addressing the entire audience as a bunch of goodie bag recipients and like we're all guilty of the mm. same gross indulgences, if you like, and picking on, obviously, celebrities. But he did it in a way which was quite brilliant. Very, very amusing. I mm. mean, quite, quite brilliant, I thought. Whereas someone like Chris Rock, who's a great comedian, I thought picking individually on something like her hair condition is a very different thing altogether. That's like a sort of mean dig. And I thought at the time when I read it, oh, it'll go, it could go either way. I personally thought everyone would kind of go, well, you're defending your wife. Good for you. And um, stand, by your, stand by your wife. It just seemed like when you see Will Smith laughing at the joke 
and then something changes and then you see him going up on stage it's like something happened in that split second which mm. sort of made him snap or something like that sometimes you have a row with your missus and then someone says something and you overreact because you're going to show that you're really going to defend her who knows about married couples so i ultimately the answer to the question is i don't think it's an important enough um event in terms of what's going on in the world i just come back from florida interviewing a man who told me he has recordings of sort of 10 species that no longer exist yeah uh, and dogs were being boiled alive um tortured and picked up with pitchforks and you kind of go chris rock who cares you know actually who cares about the oscars who cares about the globes who cares about this a fucking waste of time and money and now with woke thrown in and political correctness it it has become a travesty the whole thing and the readership is dropped and it's kind of in a way it begs the question the shelf life question is it over for that kind of an event as with fashion shows yeah i used to care a lot actually when i was younger as like sort of a young film enthusiast i i used to watch him a lot in the late 90s and then something happened i think it was they gave the oscar to shakespeare in love and i was like just this mm -hmm. is not worth it but i just had a quick question for you uh obviously you were nominated twice for leaving las vegas and you were there and what sort of was it could you feel it sort of changing then as opposed to now or has it changed in the t in the time between then well, i remember at the time saying it felt like someone told me i was a racehorse and i was in the 320 at newmarket um I'm not, a, I'm not a racehorse jockey, and I, I didn't enter the horse, you know, so, so you're suddenly in the race, and you kind of go, well, I'll just go along for the ride, and there were wonderful things that happened during that time, and, but, you know, being a participant in that was like, a, like in being in dream state, you know, and at the Oscars. I mean, I remember the hype leading up to it, and then afterwards I was with my family, <clears throat> and we were in a limo, and we went to one of the parties, and we di I didn't get in, you know. And they, and they, I think they said something like, "Who were you?" <laughs> I said, "I used to be Mike Vigas." And they went, "Okay, hang on a second, I'll have a word." And then we got in, but it was not like. It just leaves a strange taste in the mouth, doesn't it? No, I mean, you know, I come from a performance art background, and to me, it's all performance art. So yeah. I always go back to Polanski, whatever his political incorrectnesses but saying you know you believe the good reviews you are duty bound to believe the bad ones too and the same is true of awards you know you win you lose whatever it's got nothing to do with filmmaking yeah it's just entirely surreal at this point i mm. mean i find myself looking at the who or what it before the awards yeah that kind of thing anyway yeah. so my next topic i wanted to do a top up on k-drama yes Either I've started to exhaust Netflix's K-Vault. I've, I've been re-watching some of the first K-dramas I watched, you know, and in particular, anything with my favorite actress in the world, Gong Ho Jin. So, now she's, if you look her up, it's Gong, as in Gong. Mm. Um, uh, but it's also sometimes written Kong because of the anglification of Korean names. It's, it's, it's very confusing sometimes, mm. but... Either way, you will get you'll get her on Wikipedia, and and she's this unique thing. And I'm I'm holding here, but it, this is a treasured photograph of me and Gong Ho Jin mm -hmm. at um, an Asian film festival in Italy a couple of years ago. And I met her, and I actually was in awe. And I'm n not usually in awe of actors, but actually, 
I had to say, look, I'm just a huge fan, and she's so such a sweet person. I want to just talk briefly about her acting style. Sure. So the one I'm watching again, which is on Netflix, which I urge people to watch, is called, and I think I mentioned it also, was Dare to Dream. You did, yeah. Yeah. She plays a TV weather girl who wants to be a newscaster, and it's a love affair between her and one of the main newscasters who finds he's got breast cancer, and she helps him through that. When you watch something again, you're not, you're not focused on the plot. And the great thing about watching K-dramas again is you can speed through all the stuff that I think is just part of their, the thing that makes it 20 episodes where it should be 10. I was really just looking at her acting style, and she reminds me of the greatest American actresses from the 40s and 50s, Judy Holliday and, to an extent, Marilyn Monroe. And mm. um, all the great actresses were comedic in a sense you know that a romance was a comedy you yeah know? and when a romance goes wrong it's it's also a dark comedy and and in that case the technique is pretty much all about facial expressions and responses and how do you take bad news and how do you deal with someone that you love who's being a pain in the ass you know and she is sublime i mean her acting her acting is amazing absolutely amazing i think there are maybe three or four different dramas with her as the lead in and she hasn't done anything for a while but i hope she does something soon and most importantly i, I hope to work with her I'm, i would love her to be in my little k-dramas that i'm writing would uh, would western viewers have seen her in anything other than k-dramas no she hasn't okay she speaks okay english but she is in a sense quintessentially korean well you mentioned sort of that you know, Korean drama and Korean film is generally blown up. And I actually emailed a new K-drama that's just gotten re amazing reviews called Pachinko. I haven't watched it yet, no. The last crop have not, have not blown me away, I have to say. And I think a lot of that's to do, as I say, with the realization in, within the Korean industry that this is, this is a big deal and this is a kind of international universal um, item for them that they, uh, they can make money from. So it's a kind of BTS K-drama moment, I think. Mm. Because they are very widely watched outside of Korea, you know, may, obviously in Asia, but now spreading to the West. Yeah, it's hard to recapture that. Yeah. So you mentioned that you are re-editing uh, your film Kudelski. Yeah. So seven years ago, my friend Doug Aitken, who's a very successful video artist, an artist in general, had a huge installation at the Barbican. He and I had met in Los Angeles, so he invited me to participate in this project called uh, Station to Station. Mm. And I said, okay, I'd like to make a film. So the budget was tiny, I can't remember. Can you remember, Tara, was it like five grand or? I think it was 5,000 pounds. It was thereabouts, yeah. Yeah. I said, let's make a, I think it was a 40 minute film on location in Paris for 5,000 pounds. So we all got the Eurostar. Ali, Tara, and I, and one other assistant, I think. And we checked into the cheapest hotel in Montmartre. Yep. Rooms were tiny, no air conditioning. And it happened to be a week where... It was 40 degrees. I think it broke every heat record in Paris. So, and the, But, you know, the sun was shining, so the light was great. Yeah. Um, the basis of it was that all the equipment that we took was what we could carry on the Eurostar. So I think we had about four flight cases. Yeah. Basic lights, two cameras, 
um, a bunch of lenses, I think, props, costumes. In Paris, we had four actors. Yes. My, my favorite, Lika Minamoto, who's a Japanese actress who lives in, in Paris. She was the main actress. Uh, an actress called Ava. Ava Dahl. Lika then found two French actors for us to work with. And I'd shot some stuff here in London with a fantastic dancer called Emily that um, I'd worked with a lot in the past too. We had no locations. We had to f steal locations. We ended up shooting in the hotel at two in the morning and we weren't allowed guests, but all our actors were there. I think they thought we were shooting a porno. <laughs> Meanwhile, people were shagging next door so we could hear porno sounds coming through the walls, mm -hmm. but it was interfering with our artistic endeavor. It was fantastic. Yeah, it was a good time. We ate at one local restaurant and they liked us, so they gave us permission to shoot there. Yeah. And it was the, it has to be said, it was the nicest restaurant on that street. Yeah. Like the most authentic, nicest restaurant on that street. I think we'd allowed in the budget that everybody had to eat well. Yeah. That was, uh, for me, what was essential. And we did, yeah. Because I don't, I don't think we paid you or anybody. Maybe we paid you. I don't think we did. No. Okay. He's shaking his head. No, but it was, it was, it was a great, great yeah. experience. So we got all this footage and then um, got the Eurostar back. And then I think in about five days, I edited it into a film based around a man called Kudelski, who invented the Nagra tape recorder. The tape recorder itself, because I have three of them, I have a first version, a late version, and then a mini version. You, Ali, are actually in the film because I used your voice. Yeah. As Kudelski was born in Poland. In <laughs> and so you, 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 audio describe the history of, of Mr. Kodelsky and of the tape recorder, which ends up with him designing for the um, CIA and all the major spy agencies in the world with this mini tape recorder, spy tape recorder. And, you know, we, I got that ready in, and then we screened it at the Barbican. Mm. What I'm doing now is I'm revisiting things that I shot so quickly because um, we've got a lot of footage, and I've deconstructed it, and I've taken some stuff that I think didn't particularly work very well and I've re I'm restructuring it altogether with the existing footage and I'm doing that with a lot of projects and I'm finding it's incredibly rewarding I'm going back to photographs I took when I was in my 30s that I thought weren't very interesting or I thought were interesting and and then looking again and going finding the opposite finding really interesting images that I had no memory of even shooting and so on so I'm right in the middle of that now upstairs, and that's, that's kind of fascinating. I'm really enjoying it. What do you think about certain, you know, you just mentioned filmmakers going back to their projects time and time again to sort of perfect what they've done, which is what you're, I mm -hmm. guess, doing with Kodelsky. I mean, Ridley Scott's done it, Michael Mann's done it, and what do you think about that? Well, mine tend to be shorter rather than uh, in the case of many auteurs or filmmakers who want you know, the director's cut to be longer. Mm. And um, I'm a great believer in, I mean, I learned that from doing commercials that, you know, you, you shoot a commercial, you make a one minute version and you think it's really good. And then the client says, no, I want a 30 second version. And you go, oh my God, they're butchering my work. And then the 30 second, you do the 30 second and you realize that that's the best one because that is in a sense, that's how we make films. So it's about synthesizing it down to its, you know, shortest possible version. And then you look at the one minute version and it actually seems quite long and ponderous, a bit pretentious even, you know. So I find the same. I, I'm, I think I'm good at cutting stuff now. Cutting stuff away and exposing 
and an example of that was when I did Miss Julie, uh, and I read the original, obviously, the play by Strindberg, and there's a whole section in the middle which is all about feminist politics at the turn of the 20th century, and it's very out of date, and, and, you, and it reads like propaganda, and you know that when you see the stage version, you're like, okay, they've got to get through this, this political speech now, and finding ways to cut it um, or, or incorporate it into something else. On the basis that all work should still be living work, it should still have the potential, if you have the technology to do that, you know, it's tricky with a painting, but not impossible. Um, you can scrape away and overpaint and all that. You know, but as painters always say, that the secret is knowing when to stop. Yeah, yeah, that's because you've got like five versions of a film at this point. But. I mean, my dear friend, um, Hethcott Williams, yeah, uh, who who died a couple of years ago now, but was a genius, and, and I got to know Hethcott. In, I knew his work, and then I invited him to be one of the actors in Stormy Monday, and then he's pretty much in every British film I've ever made, and the really experimental hotel he's a genius in that and he he actually did the adaptation of duchess of malfi which i would love to do as a stage play now because it's it's so brilliant so the whole point about hethcott was one of his great friends is al pacino yeah yeah and so uh hethcott worked with al pacino on pacino's looking for richard i believe richard the third is it yes and i don't think anyone's ever seen it because because al just keeps re-editing it (laughs) And won't let it go. And now that's his baby. You know, he wants... And that is true. I quite like having the elements, like my family, are all archived upstairs. And, you know, it means I can take them out for a spin if I want to. With no thought of actually showing the public, actually. You know, and that's something that, as I get older, I find worryingly repetitive now, which is that I'm doing stuff and I, people say, oh, you're going to do an exhibition? And I... Not really bothered, actually. I'm just, I'm kind of doing it for me. Well, I can't wait to see the new version of Kudelski. Yeah. So, the main question that I wanted to, you wanted to bring up, uh, is what is wrong with film and film music right now? Yeah. I mean, it's a big, it's a big topic, and of course, uh, it, it for me puts me into the category of you know the grumpy grumpy old geezer you know back in the day i actually agree with you so you're not i mean what drives me crazy is film music number one so um i think last night i watched the second part of the maxwell documentary so this deals with apparently deals with the uh robert maxwell scandal his suicide slash murder whatever and then obviously what happened to his daughter gillane and where she is now with the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing. So the Epstein thing is, it's perfect for for consumption because it's about sex and exploitation and all the rest of it and and famous people, you know, in high places. So You know there's going to be a movie. I was more interested in the father because I remember the whole scandal, but I'd forgotten a lot of the details. He owned the Daily Mirror. He yeah. stole the pension fund. He went down the toilet for... I don't know, three or four billion, and then vanished off his yacht. Yeah. He was a bit of a monster. You know, you can see in succession that it's, in a sense, much closer to Maxwell than it is to Murdoch. So I was interested to see it. And, I, you know, it was so boring in the sense that right from the very beginning, whoever their 
library consultant was all of the composer and if they bothered to pay anyone there's this dreadful kind of doomy music and combined with certain kind of images of a tape recorder going spooling around spooling around and because they got this amazing recordings of all the phone calls he tapped right but then it turns out they'd replicated them because they were hiding the identity of the person who'd made the phone call something like that i got so bored at a certain point and it just highlighted in a documentary but also a feature film where we got up to right now in terms of how we make the product and the limited number of tropes that we now use just cliches that we repeat over and over and over again and i would go back to my roots as a composer as a musician and studying opera and in particular wagner so wagner had this dream of a complete theater which would be a combination of let's say theater pure music and visuals you know and this is what he was striving for in his operas and of course he's sort of a, a description of a film mm. Because the limitations of theatrical opera are you're stuck on a stage and the actors are usually very big and, and don't really look like your idea of, of beauty, but they sound great. Wagner would have been a filmmaker. He would have been, you know, he would have been an epic filmmaker. And, and as an example of that in Lars von Trier's film where he uses the Wagner prelude to Tristan and Isolde, you know, the one about the planets crashing into each Melancholia, other. Melancholia, that's right. Melancholia. Yeah. The entire overture and the last sequence are, yeah. are based on Wagner, and it's just basically Wagner with visuals. Mm. And that's what makes it a great film, because there are, there are amazing sequences. So when you harness the power of great music with the great visual vision of a filmmaker like Lars von Trier, you go to a much higher level the sum total of the two is so much bigger than the individual parts, you know, because you've combined his dream of pure opera. What attracted me to film in the first place was the realization that these elements, like I'd, I'd studied audio, I'd studied music, I'd come through photography into cinematography, and then almost by default had to start writing narratives in which to hang all these things together. But for me, always the potential interest was what higher level could you take the sum of these parts to that would transcend your kind of the banality of the, for example, of the plot, as in opera. Um, no one cares that they're banal because they've done the suspension of disbelief or participation mystique, as Jung would say, that takes them to a transported level. And I don't see that in film right now. I don't, I'm not transported. I'm actually bored. Mm. I'm irritated, sometimes angry by the crass oversimplification and banality of the techniques that are being exploited ruthlessly by the capitalist elements within production because I don't feel there are artists at work here at all. And what's really sad for me is the realization that it could have been a contender yeah but instead it's not it's just a bum it's just a repetitive bum doing the same mantra over and over and over again looking at the box office the cum as they say and all that uh, 
and I see K-drama going that way too, um, they all go down the same toilet. So in film school, like, they taught us different film movements, you know, film history, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the first ones they teach you is Soviet montage, which mm -hmm. is what, like through the power of editing and all the things that you mentioned. Obviously, this was during the silent era, but they added sort of music to it later. And I think you really described the power that film has very, very well. And you were talking about what it should be doing. Mm -hmm. And I kind of find myself in the same place. I can't really... Uh, I can't feign interest in a lot of new things and you mm. sort of see trailers for new things coming out with, you know, huge stars and whatever. And it's just, it, it could be something on my part where I'm sort of desensitized because I've watched so much, but it could also be that, you know, you kind of have lost faith in the power of sort of people to make things that are interesting. It's interesting because I ask the question often, you know, is it just because I'm jaded and I've seen too much? Um, but I haven't seen that much. I mean, it's not like I, I didn't do the Quentin Tarantino school of watching every movie ever made in a video shop. I mean, I haven't seen that many films, you know. And in fact, the, one of the joys is that, you know, people that I really respect would say, did you ever see that film made in 1962? And I go, no, oh, 62. I'll, what, I'll check that out because I have a feeling that it has more potential than someone said, oh, have you seen the new film that just came out last week? Um, so... And so when I do see something either that I've seen before that is even better than I remember or something I've never seen before, or, you know, like a couple of years ago when I saw It Follows, I kind of went, ah, that's cool. That's somebody with a really interesting and bold vision, you know. Uh, when I saw Force Majeure, that, that film of the, of mm. the are you Swedish or Danish? Swedish, I think. Uh, yes, Swedish. I yeah. I thought, wow, that's someone who really understands the combination thing, you know, like the sound design was, was absolutely amazing in that film and so on. So I, then I'm kind of delighted that, no, it's like I ate some good food and my taste buds do still work. I just haven't had anything but bland crap for quite a while. I mean, it's just interesting because there's so much being made right now. You know, I'll always look at the BBC will have, you know, this many films coming out this month and you'll see all these things are being made, but very, very few of them, if any, are going to be any good. You know, the West, to an extent, has lost the idea of what the public might really want is to be entertained skillfully, artistically, and transported by people that don't look like them. Like, there's nothing wrong with glamour. I mean, but then I go back to my dear Kong Ho Jin, mm. And she's not, she's famous for not having had plastic surgery, which mm. is quite something. Um, and she's kind of an ordinary looking person, but when she lights up, she's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life. So it's kind of reflects um, the way love works, you know, that you fall in love with someone and somebody else might think they're ordinary, but the way they respond to you and you to them means they light up in a certain way. And great actors are the ones that have the ability to reflect that within a relationship, a fake relationship within a film, to make you believe that actually those characters are real. And that is her talent, as opposed to, I mean, some of the K-drama actresses are so stunningly beautiful, and they've all had, they've all had uh, cosmetic surgery. But that's a kind of given now. I mean, they have it when they're very young. And um, it does negate the ability for the face to move in an interesting way when you're so 
sure of how pretty you are or how good looking you are or how young you look, you know. So going back to mainstream filmmaking, I think they've lost the ability. I mean, Jennifer Lawrence, when she first hit the scene, had the potential, I think, to be that kind of every every person's character. Yeah. And there's something really kind of fresh and original about it. And then they just immediately started putting her in films that didn't give her that range. That's the system, like Winter's Bone. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I thought it was a great film. And yeah. I didn't know who she was. Yeah. And I was like, who is this actress? She's amazing. And then I guess at some point, maybe the machine takes over. I mean, interestingly enough, uh, a very early film of Gwyneth Paltrow's um, before she was Gwyneth Paltrow, very like Winter's Bone, a kind of really... Uh, is it Flesh and Bone? Yeah. Yeah, with Dennis yeah. Quaid. Another bone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, James Caan as well. Yeah, so again, you kind of thought someone with a great potential to be that, that, that actor that could deliver reality in a kind of like gritty kind of environment. And, and Hollywood's response, oh... Get her into a Marvel movie as quick. Oh, well, not Gwyneth, but I mean, you know. Oh, she did. She did Marvel oh, she movies did. too. Yeah, yeah. Mm, okay. And that, you know, raises the topic. You know, actually, my, my friend Nicolas Cage, who's now arguing with his uncle and with uh, Scorsese and saying, he doesn't see anything wrong with the Marvel universe, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Because obviously, Francis, has, Francis hates it. As the Scorsese. Yeah. yeah. Um, as does my friend Stephen Dorff, who then had to kind of publicly apologize because obviously he'd pissed on the wrong strawberries, you know. There's yeah. a lot to say about that. I mean, funny enough, going back to about 2000, right, I was invited to this seminar, I think, in Silicon Valley. Mm. So it was me and Stan Lee and Roger Ebert, the critic, right. and somebody else. Mm. We were a panel talking about the future of the Internet. I was so kind of excited by the internet. I got on the panel and immediately became apparent that all they were interested in was how do we monetize it, particularly Stan Lee. And I decided to be entertaining. Mm -hmm. And so I made a passionate speech and I said that the internet was the greatest invention since the Beethoven late quartets or something like that. And that the great thing about it was it was free information and it was a way of kind of bringing the whole world together through knowledge and shared experience. And the idea of charging any money for it was like pornographic. And so Roger Ebert said to me, well, oh, you don't have a problem with people watching your films for free. I went, I've never made a penny out of anybody watching any of my films from a studio. It's called creative accountancy. So no, bring it on. Let them watch everything for free. So I think I was entertaining and I was, I was the minority. You know? So already back then, it was like, how do we make money? You were right, though, and it posed the question if the Internet hadn't been, well, not maybe invented, but, you know, it's Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who's yeah. British, yeah. you know, and he decided to give it away for free. What would have happened if maybe someone else had invented mm. it? And it's an interesting thing. And uh, now you've got, you know, you've got Disney+, Plus, you've got Hulu, you've got HBO Max. Mm. So it, I think we're just getting started in, like, the streaming wars. Yeah, and Netflix just put their prices up. Yeah, yeah, you can't sort of share memberships, which kind of is not mm. good for me. It's an American approach, almost. But I... but going back to, you know, what is wrong with film, mm. music is one of the main villains. And composers, like writers in Hollywood, are, are clearly the whores mm. of, of the industry because they're basically, they're for hire. 
the process of bringing a composer on or a writer or a series of writers on is, a, is really a, just a series of financial negotiations. Um, what's their price? What, you know, what will we offer them? What's their back end like? And I know, for example, when the bad experiences I had in Hollywood with composing, when Ridley Scott fired me off the Browning version as the composer, I had my revenge because I then used that score on Leaving Las Vegas. Mm. Um, the main theme mm. I'd written for Albert Finney, but that became Nick Cage's theme. So I was fired because they wanted a real composer. But then I had to listen to Ridley Scott giving him directions of what the music should be saying. And at that point, you know, it's like I felt my soul depart. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to ask you. Like the, you mentioned the process of sort of composers coming in. So a lot of composers are very lucky if they get to see anything that's been shot, right? They just have talks with the director about what the director wants out of the music. How does that exactly work? The power still lies with production mm. um, in a big Hollywood movie. And they will actually say, you know, we've done tests because they'll do temp score. So they'll, they'll borrow John Williams and, um, and whoever they want. Mm -hmm. um, and then they'll kind of do these tests to see how the audience responded to certain scenes with that kind of music. And then they'll change the music. So that will then highlight the kind of music that had the best reaction in that scene. So it's a kind of, al I don't know, is it algorithmic or whatever, but they, yeah. kind, of, they kind of figure it out that way. And, th and it, it was all, always thus. Mm -hmm. A great book to read if you're interested in film is called Picture. It's written by a brilliant American journalist called Lillian Ross. Okay. And it's written in the 50s. And... It's a kind of benchmark in a certain kind of journalistic writing that was then much imitated. So basically, she piggybacked on the, an entire production of John Huston's The Red Badge of Courage. Okay, I've never seen it. Yeah. I'm, I've just read that. I'm reading the novel right mm. now, funnily enough. I actually just read it like a few months ago. Funnily. How funny. Yeah. Because yeah, my friend, uh, Paul Loster, has just written a biography of Crane. The okay, author, yeah. Stephen okay. Crane. Yeah. So she went all through casting, and they cast a war hero called Audie Murphy, yes. a very famous actor, and already that was controversial because the main character in Red Badge of Courage is a coward who runs away from the battle, and Audie Murphy was a much decorated, I think, maybe Korea, certainly Second World War. World War II, I think. Yeah, vet. And had to play a coward. He'd become an actor. So then they... Sh Obviously, Houston's very interesting. She, she's very interested in Houston. They mm. shoot the movie. She follows the shooting process. You realize nothing much has changed. And then it gets to post-production where they screen the first cut in the private screening room of the producer. Mm. And I think it's Cher Dory or someone like that. And the music is one of the first things that comes under kind of fire. I mean, famously, in another film, uh, at such a screening... One of those moguls, those studio moguls, apparently, he's hated the music so much. At a certain point, he said, stop, stop. What is, what is the name for that device, that musical device that's being used there? And somebody said, oh, it's, it's a minor chord, sir. And the next day, apparently, there's a directive posted all around the studio. No more minor chords. <laughs> <laughs> so... That's all, you know, that's always been the joke about Hollywood, you know, it's just like the music, as I say, is that bring in the clowns, bring in the writers, the hookers, mm. you know, God bless them. And then occasionally, you know, one, one sneaks through. 
like the score for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you know, yeah. which is which is brilliant. And then things like um, the Jane Fonda movie where she plays a hooker. And oh, Clute, great movie. Great score. Yeah. And then In the Heat of the Night, you know, Quincy, Quincy Jones' Jones. score, you know, and In Cold Blood, Quincy Jones. Mm. So there are these kind of amazing things that do get through. Mm. A lot of it to do with the fact that it was the West Coast and there was a thriving jazz scene. Mm -hmm. So a lot of jazz musicians become people who do film score because mm. jazz works very well, as I know, mm. for film. Anyway, cut back to the present tense now, and I, I long for that kind of a vibe. I'd love to see some Western actors and actresses that had the quality of Gong Ho Jin. Yeah. Number one where we had a much more focus on relationships rather than problems. Any, any good, well-made, popular film will touch on topics that are, that are current at that time. Mm. Even a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers musical will somehow be in some kind of a context. So that's my gripe for today. Um, and just really a plea, a, an encouragement to actually, you know, be a bit bolder and a bit braver when you're making films and take more risks. And um, I don't know, try harder. I mean, it would be great, but I'm, you know, I'm not very optimistic about sort of the main, you know, providers sort of doing that, unfortunately. But well, on that, I think optimistic and cheerful note. Um, we will end today's podcast. Again, thank you, Ali, for your invaluable um, contribution. And we'll talk next week, yeah? Thanks, Mike. I'll think of something. I'm trying to think of something interesting. <laughs> <laughs>